0: There are a few things that are needed in this world right now more than the Church of Jesus Christ to be the Church and to be a strong and healthy, vibrant Church. So I want to talk to you about that this weekend, and I want to make sure that you and I are on the same page about what God has called us to do and what God has called us to be, and we want to start with a word of prayer then we want to get into the book of first Peter it's been great for me to study second Peter with you every weekday afternoon and it's great for me to get the mindset of Peter as I think through what Peter was doing to arm and equip the church for good things for productivity for fruitfulness in his generation and certainly God had intended as he moved Peter to write these two epistles to us So that we would, uh, in the 21st century, be prepared to do the work God has called us to do. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and grab your Bibles. In just a minute, we're going to look into that passage. But first, I want to start with a word of prayer. So pray with me, please. God, we are grateful for the chance to study your word again. We need to recalibrate our minds, get grounded in the truth of your word to make sure that we understand what you have to say for us, that we might come away from this time in our study committed to and resolved to do the things that you have called us to do. And God, I know that starts with us as individuals. May we have that sense of looking at this passage the way that you intended, looking in our own hearts, and our own lives, not at other people, being, make, uh, being sure and getting ready to be sure that we are the kinds of uh, strong members of this church that we should be. And uh, so, God, I pray you'd speak to us as we're responsive here to you. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 4. Is about a church that is going to be strong. And I want you to see this passage, verses 1 through 11 as part of what it's going to take for us to serve the purpose that God has called us to serve in our generation right now, at this time, in this period, not just this month and this year, but as long as God allows us together to serve Him as a church. And certainly I'm concerned most, uh, first and foremost, for Compass Bible Church here in Liso Viejo, but you may be listening somewhere else. And certainly you have been called to a particular local body, and I want you to think through your role in that body, because strong churches... Uh, really have to do with strong members. And I say members because that word is used and what it means is a part of the body. Even in old English, we would talk about a member of the body, uh, an arm, a leg, an elbow, uh, you know, a knee. Those are the members of the parts of the body. And you are a part of the body. And if you're here at Compass AV, you are a part of the body. The question is, what kind of Part of the body are you? Are you dead weight, or are you an active, strong, vibrant part of the body? And there are eight commitments here in this passage in the first eleven verses that I want to look at today that will help us make sure that we are what we need to be, that we might be the strong, vibrant church, the pillar and foundation of the truth, as Paul put it. ESV calls it the buttress of the truth, thing that holds up the truth in our generation. And so these are the things that will get us there. Let me read the passage. Uh, for you, and then we're going to look at it a couple verses at a time, starting in verse number one. First Peter chapter four, verse one, follow along as I read this from the English Standard Version. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, here's a military word here, arm yourself, equip yourself, get ready. An imperative verb. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That Greek word that's just transliterated, amen. That's right. That's the right thing. That's for sure. That, That is how it is. So be it. That's a great text and it's great to see us Stop there with that word, amen, because it's almost like that. that's enough for us to digest, and there's plenty here. As a matter of fact, if you're used to my preaching, you know that 11 verses, a lot of verses for us to cover, particularly the dense kind of theological and practical exhortation in this passage, uh, in this epistle. It's, I mean, we just can't cover it all, but I wanted to put it all together because it's a good breadth of commitment and resolve that we need to have as we think through being the people that God has called us to be, because we can get distracted, we can get into all kinds of other things, or we can be focused on who we are are as a church, holding out the words of life, being the ambassadors of the gospel, calling people to repentance. And to do that, we need to be part of a body that is strong. And as we look forward to getting back together in this weird hiatus that we've been in and settling back into face-to-face, person-to-person meeting here on campus, these are the kinds of things that we need as we get out of this time of video watching and, and, and you know, kind of being from a distance here. And we need to get back on campus with a vibrant, healthy church. So it's going to start with these things. Let's start here in verse number one. Let's take verses one and two here together. As Peter says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, and of course he did in his incarnation, took a lot of heat, a lot of suffering. He promised that the world was going to hate him and it's going to hate us. And he says, you need to arm yourself, prepare yourself, equip yourself with the same way of thinking. Get your mind right. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now you think that's a hard concept to understand. I, you know, I, I'm suffering, but I haven't ceased from sin. He's about to explain it here in verse number 2 so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the resolve. That's the commitment. It starts there. And when someone is committed to living for the agenda of God, the will of God, the dictates of God, the things that God wants us to be, well, then they're going to have to struggle in this life against a lot of other things. And Peter's already talked about it. And we're going to spend all of our time in the cross references in today's message, looking only in first Peter, because I want to show you how these themes run throughout the book and all of these, how us understand what it means to be committed to God's will in this life. But the first thing I just want you to say or write down that I want to say is to have you jot down that you are going to cease from a sinful life of wandering like sheep doing whatever you're going to do in this life, living for yourself, pleasing yourself if you commit yourself to the will of God. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be the hard task You're going to need strength. You're going to have that kind of resolve that you see Christ had to go to the cross and say, not your will, but mine be done as he's in the garden, knowing it's going to be very hard for him. So I put it down this way. Number one, strongly commit yourself to God's will. And I want you to think about that as we go back to meeting together. You you need to right now say, I'm going to strongly commit myself. With all the pressures and every wind of doctrine and everyone trying to get us off task into something else, strongly commit yourself and say, I'm going to be committed to doing what God wants. I'm going to be strongly committed to doing the will of God. So important. Turn back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I want to look at how costly this is to be the kinds of people that do God's will. There were people that Peter is writing to that have been scattered all about. They're being persecuted. Much of the theme of of 1 Peter is about suffering and how to deal with that suffering. But I want you to think how costly this obedience is. As you strongly commit yourself to the will of God, if you say, I am a person that is committed to God's agenda, what he's written for us in the word, what we are called to be, then just know that no matter where you are, no matter what situation you're in, he's going to talk about geography here, but no matter what Season of this church history timeline you're on, no matter what you know, role of life you have, no matter what your, your, your background is, no matter who you are, this is what we're called to be. This defines us, and it's going to be costly. Certainly, it costs them. They were scattered about. And we need to be the kinds of people that say, well, this is our agenda. This is our identity. This is who we are. And we're going to strongly commit ourselves to be the people that see ourselves, no matter what our job description is, no matter what our daily situation is, in terms of our family or our responsibilities or the challenges or the crosses we have to bear, in terms of our health or our economics or anything else. This is our calling, to be people who do what God has asked us to do, to be obedient to His agenda and His will. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, he says, an apostle, which is a great reminder of it. He's a sent one. He's commissioned an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what the word means, a sent one. To those who are elect, exiles are out there in the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for obedience. The sprinkling with his blood, right? God has cleansed us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, just think through what is being said here. Here are all these people, no matter where they are, scattered about, probably scattered under the persecution of the early church and the emperor and all that's going on in the Roman world, the ancient world uh, power as, as they were incurring its wrath in many ways. He says, just know this, that you're called according to God's foreknowledge. He loved you ahead of time. He knew you ahead of time, obviously, and you are set apart by the spirit. That's what sanctification means for the obedience to Jesus Christ. This is your identity. No matter where you are or what you do, this is who you are. You are called, set apart by God, loved beforehand, in eternity past by God. You are predestined to be the people that are going to serve God in this time, in this generation, in this place. Just think about that. There are so many things you could commit your life to doing. There's so many things that can distract you to invest your time in and your life in and your energy and your money. God says, here's what you're called to be. You're called to be my obedient emissaries, my obedient servants in your life, in your time, in your place. I I just want us to have grace, God's favor, and peace in the midst of that kind of, of, of situation. In our case, in the 21st century, in the midst of this, you know, end of this COVID-19 shutdown, in the midst of social social and cultural unrest, we are called to be people who obey Christ. We're called to be His sent ones. We're called to be his ambassadors were called to do His will. The world has a different agenda. Move forward to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13-17. through 17. I want you to see that we are to do this no matter what. We are to be zealous for this. I'm to be strongly committed to doing it, no matter what the world might do, no matter what pushback we get from the world. Look at verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. God's favors rest upon you. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Right? He's the singular soul boss in my life. Always being prepared, middle of verse 15 here, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We have a transcendent eternal hope I talked about last week. We have something that goes beyond this world and you need to be ready to, to explain them, to get the charge off of you that you're not interested in what they're interested in because you're for something far bigger. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. I don't want to be a jerk about it. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame that we do right. We're good. We do the obedient things. For it is better to suffer for doing good than if uh, if that should be God's will. And of course, it was for them as they're scattered all over the ancient world than for doing evil. So I want to know that my commitment to doing God's will may be difficult, it may be hard, it may cost me, may cost me a lot of things in this life, but the worldly agenda that the world has, the things that they're all about, I'm just solely committed to doing the right thing, no matter how hard that might be, no matter how much pushback I might, might get, no matter how difficult it is, no matter if it feels like I'm swimming upstream. Strongly commit yourself to doing what is righteous, what is good, what is the will of God. And that takes us to the next verse in verses 3 and 4 back to our passage First Peter chapter 4 he says the time passed the had plenty of time and it suffices has been plenty for you for doing what the gentiles do here's a picture of the non-christians right they are the largely jewish audience that Peter is writing to as a Jewish apostle, right? Of course, he's reaching non-Christians as well. He's known for, in the book of Acts, the first convert in Acts chapter 10 of an Italian. Uh, He's taking the gospel in those concentric circles from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I mean, really, the ends of the earth is first uh, brought, I mean, the gospel is brought to the ends of the earth through this Italian uh, leader of this cohort, this this centurion, as he's called, over a hundred Roman soldiers. So we know that he's, speaking here, at least in this context, of those who are non-Christians. And I'm sure there are plenty of people in the dispersion of these Jews. There are some people that are not of Abraham's descent, and yet there's that contrast of non-Christians. And he says, they're expecting you to do the things that they do. Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So as I think about doing the will of God, it's going to be more than just keeping my life clean. But in this point, I want to say that's where it's going to start. I mean, I need to do that before I get to the agenda of God. I'm going to care about the morality of God. I'm going to make sure that that is my wholehearted, sincere commitment. So I put it this way. Number two, sincerely resolve to live righteously, that my concern as I think about the agenda of God in this church and being a strong church and being a strong component part of this church, that I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to fight the battle, the daily battle of righteousness and godliness in my life. Scroll up to chapter 2 or turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. I want you to know that it's always going to be an internal batter, battle. I'm going to prepare my, my mind. I'm going to arm myself for that struggle I'm going to have with the world because I'm going to push the agenda of God forward. Talked a little bit about that little bit about that last week in terms of evangelism, more about the church being strengthened here internally as we make disciples and grow them up in Christ. But I'm going to make sure that in my mind, I'm ready to fight the battle for righteousness with temptation and the struggles that I face and idolatry and greed and all the rest. And here's a passage that's helpful, I think, just to remember, it's going to be hard. I know you know that, but let's look at it afresh. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, the world's, the world's never going to be wired for us in a comfortable way. It's never going to have the kind of entertainment or the kind of, 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 of leisures that are going to fit perfectly with a Christian life. It's always going to be a struggle. We're always going to have to sort things out. It's going to have to be a difficulty. That's what the... Old Testament dietary restrictions reminded us of. You just couldn't go in and let your guard down. You never let your guard down on this world. You're sojourners and you're exiles. Your home is in another place. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. All the world designed to do things that kind of inflame the sinful passions of my life. Really, it's a battle internally that I'm going to have to get serious about fighting. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, right? And they're always going to slander us because of our message, because what we're saying about them being sinners and about them needing the same redemption that we need to have Christ be the King and Lord of our life. They're going to struggle against that. So he says, you got to keep your conduct honorable. So that when they speak against you to evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Hopefully because of their conversion and our lives were part of that. They can glorify God on the day of visitation when Christ is dispatched to get our church and they can be part of that group that is eagerly anticipating his return. An internal uh, battle, but it's a godly goal. It's a good goal and it's a goal if you go back to chapter one that you should uh, recognize is just an alliance with God and His attributes and the godliness of all that God has laid out for us. Is there something gratifying about this when we start to see it happening? It's a well-pleasing goal. Take a look at verse 13, which really echoes what we're seeing in our passage in chapter 4 about getting our minds ready, arming ourselves, the same way of thinking. Look at verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a good thing, the favor. When Christ uh, returns, going to be so vindicating. It's going to be such a good thing to see His favor when He comes back. And you can set your hope on that. It's not your hope here. It's not your hope in this life. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And you see people indulging in that all the time out there in this world. Verse 15. But as He who called you is holy... Be holy in all of your conduct. Now, he's about to quote here, Leviticus 11.44. Since it is written very simply, to the end of the dietary restrictions, he says, be holy, be set apart, for I am holy. This Hebrew word, gadosh, the idea of being separated from the rest. And of course, it was in the context of the dietary restrictions that they weren't going to go into Canaan and just eat like they ate, not that there's anything inherently wrong with the food, but because they were to see themselves as a separate and distinct people and their morality was going to be separate and distinct because they were going to reflect the godliness of God, the holiness of God. And that's the picture here. Be set apart. As I'm set apart from the world, I need you to be called out. That's what the word ekklesia, church, means. The ones that are called out from the rest. Of course, technically... We can talk about the church being an assembly of people they are called out for a meeting, but the idea of being called out, certainly it echoes this very deep and almost poetic sense of being called out from a world that has a whole different agenda as to what is right and good and acceptable. Our morality is not defined by what the cultural surveys say is okay, but by what the Bible defines. So strongly commit yourself to the will of God and then sincerely resolve to live Righteously, that is where all of our power is going to come from, even in terms of our reputation. They will malign our reputation, but the power of people saying, you know what, though, they do live righteous lives. They do live good lives. And I know many times that's even a rebuke to them, and it pours salt in their wounds, but some people see it, and they recognize, you know what, I don't have anything bad to say about these people. And that's the goal of Peter's preaching here to that first century group, and then, of course, the Holy Spirit to us 2,000 years later. Verse 5, back to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to stay, as I said, in 1 Peter, looking at various passages that reinforce all of this. Look at verse 5. First Peter chapter 4, verse 5, but they will give an account, these people that keep wanting us to live like them, keep beckoning us to join them. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living, you put that in quotes, and the dead. Okay, of course, because he's going to judge everyone there after this life is over. He's going to judge them. All of us have to give an account or an evaluation the living and the dead. So we're talking about Christians and non-Christians here. That's why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, right? And we're not talking here about people in the grave and preachers going to a graveyard. We're talking about people that are not spiritually alive and they're not going to be alive. I mean, it's, it's, it's a condemnation obviously for them if they're going to reject it. But the point is we're going to get that word out. They're going to see the standard and the call and what God asks of all people to call them to repentance and obedience. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. That's the goal and hope of all preaching. We want to see the dead come alive. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were all dead in our transgressions at one time. God's calling us to be alive. Even those who will reject Christ will one day be judged. We often think of that in terms of the coming judgment. But also we who are Christians are going to be judged and evaluated. And I get this question all the time. But there's a distinction between those two. Either way. Both of those need to stay in view on our own thinking. I think that's certainly clear here. We need to be thoughtful of the fact that he's going to judge the living and the dead, the Christians and the non-Christians. Now, just think about that in a minute as it helps us kind of reaffirm our commitment to his will and our resolve to live right is to number three, keep the coming judgment in view. That would change so many things if you really think about it. So many things about your life and your decisions and your priorities and your investment. If you just really understood very clearly that Christ is coming back and he will judge his church and he will judge lost people, that's going to change a lot. That's going to calibrate so many things in your thinking and it's going to prioritize so many things in your schedule and it's going to put things in your view and your target that you really need to invest in materially in terms of your time and your money and your effort. All of that's going to be clarified just by thinking, okay, Christ is coming back. Christ is going to judge. Christ is going to judge the non-Christians. Christ is going to judge me as a believer. Now He's going to judge us differently, right? Romans chapter eight verse one says, "There's no condemnation for those in Christ." So I will not be judged, right, point by point, deed by deed, for the sins of my life, so that I'm paying for it because Christ has already absorbed all that. But I will give an account of my life. Second Corinthians chapter five, right? Romans chapter fourteen. I mean, our passage in this text reminds us He's going to judge the living. So many things in 1 Peter about this. Let's go back to chapter 1 again and see Him say this very clearly to help us live a way in a way that is prioritized and righteous and sold out to the, the will and agenda of God. Take a look at it, verse 17, 17 through 19. First Peter 1, look at it with me. If you call on Him as Father, and you pray that way, right? You say to God, Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. right? You remember, He's the judge. And you're praying to him as father, and I know you're not condemned, but that should lead you to conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. You're going to have to answer to dad, and you're living in a place now called earth where you're a sojourner and an exile. You don't belong here. All the things that they want you to do, all the things they want you to think, all the places they want you to go to be entertained or to be you know, uh, occupied with or to be investing in, those are not the things... Right? Not that all of them are excluded, but those are not the things that just part and parcel you can say, well, if that's what the world expects me to do, I should do it. No, we're exiles here. So I'm going to live very carefully, thoughtfully with fear. Fear, I know we don't like that word as Christians. We think we shouldn't have any fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We start quoting 1 John. But you see, that has to do with judgment and condemnation. That has to do with being cast out. We're not talking about that kind of fear. We're talking about the fear that a child would have when dad comes in to see if he's cleaned his room like he was told to. There's a fear of, of, of displeasing our father. We call on him as father. And you know he's going to judge each one's work impartially. Well, then we ought to conduct ourselves with fear during our time of exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways. Inherited from your forefathers. You can't continue in that. Right? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But with imperishable. right? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Remember that you are owned by God. He's purchased you. And you you need to be the one in your own thinking that realizes that the judgment for your life is coming. It's called the Bema seat where Christ is on an elevated throne and He looks at our lives and we give an account for the hope that's in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's wood, hay, and straw. There's gold, silver, and precious stones. He's going to sort the things out in our life and we want to amass more treasure. That's the goal. But what better way to remember not only our own accountability and making us more resolved to doing the will of God and living righteously, but to think about the way that God judges the lost. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Go down past our passage to verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. We looked at that passage, but keep running. For it is time, verse 17, keep reading. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Okay? God is going to evaluate us. God is going to keep us accountable. Now God is letting a lot of the unrighteousness continue on in this world. But if it begins with us, if God's going to take an evaluation of our life and our behavior. said what will the outcome what what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God, right? I mean if he's going to evaluate everything that we're doing and he's going to reward us and evaluate us. And if we're going to suffer loss in things that we could have had, and I think there's going to be a great sense of, of loss for so many of us in so many areas of our life. Well, if he's looking at our lives like that, Noah, what's going to happen to those that are lost? Right? The dead that he's going to judge. If the righteous are scarcely saved, I right? mean if God can barely bring it seems like these people that didn't even live these good Christian lives, but you know, we fell short in so many areas. Well, think about it. What's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? They don't even have their sins appended to the cross. It's one thing to not present a good, clean room that God asked us to clean up before the Father. But think about the Father coming in to those who have rejected the payment for their sins. I mean, there's going to be great suffering. But for us, he says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What a motivation that is for us to live righteously and to be a, uh, committed to the agenda of God. So all of that is preliminary. Even though it's three points in our sermon already, I got eight things to say in these 11 verses. Those are the things that get us ready. We've armed ourselves to do the will of God. That's an that's a, a, a agenda that we're going to look at. And then to live a righteous life. That's the foundation. And to know that the thing that keeps us focused on that, the thing that gives us accountability in that is the knowledge of our future day of reckoning, of our accountability and knowing that God's going to judge the sinner that rebels against God and God is going to look at us and evaluate us. And that's a very important thing to keep us on the path. Well, what's the thing we need to do? Well, verses 7 through 11, let's get into the heart of it now. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. At any moment, this can be over. At any moment, you could be standing before God. As James says, the judge is standing at the door. So if my life is going to be over at any time, if our church is all going to stand before God and give an account one day, then what should I do? Well, therefore, I ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And the first thing on the agenda is this, for the sake of your prayers. Okay, number four, recommit yourself to prayer. I mean, I have to say, when this whole shutdown started, I thought, well, prayer is going to be a great thing. Going to be a lot more time for prayer. Now, I know my schedule might be different than your schedule, and maybe you were successful at this. But I'm so disappointed and said, I confess so many times in the midst of this that I'd hoped and had this great expectation of having this expanded prayer life. And it's been hard. It's been so much struggle. As John Chrysostom said so many years ago, he said, you know, God knows how good a good prayer is, right? Satan knows how good a good prayer is that Satan himself is going to oppose it. He's going to press hard, I'm paraphrasing, press hard against those believers who give themselves to the prayer. And, and we need to know no matter what situation we're in, we need to never let our guard down. As I frankly confess, I thought, well, what a good time for my prayer life just to go to the next level. We need to always recognize the agenda of, of God is going to be led by a prayer-driven life, a, prayer, a, a, a prayer-saturated life, and, and I just frankly need to call you and call myself to say we gotta recommit ourselves to prayer. Doesn't matter if we're busy, doesn't matter if we're not working, doesn't matter if our schedules all change. This is always gonna be a challenge in Christian life. It's always going to be a fight. And today we need to say, okay, let us pray. We gotta pray. And one of the reasons we pray, look at 1 Peter chapter five, is because in this world, right, we're gonna have so many struggles. We're never gonna get through this with the proper mindset unless we give ourselves to prayer. Prayer is a necessity for you in this life. One reason is because we live in such a fallen, messed up world. A lot of things you can complain about, a lot of things you'd be critical of. I just want you to be focused on praying. We've got to start there. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and eight, 7 and 8. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that the proper time He may exalt you. I mean, we're so frustrated so often in our prayer lives because we don't get the immediate answer. This is going to set us up for prayer in verse 7. But he's saying now, just, you know, the timing of this is God's. God is powerful. You're going to talk to Him. And you just need to trust in His timing. And it says in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him. This Greek word that your mind is pulled in so many different places. Merizomai, that, that Greek word that divides my mind. It's it's cut into pieces and I'm tempted to be everywhere. Well, my mind needs to be humbled under God's mighty hand, committed to his agenda. I'm committed to living according to his standard. I'm remembering my coming judgment. And so the first thing I do is I pray. I take all of my temptations of having my mind in every different place and I, I cast my anxieties on him. That's a way to describe prayer. I'm putting all that on him. And I know this, he... He cares for you. Because he cares for you, I'm going to pray. Verse 8. So be sober-minded. We're back to that again. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Even today, my thoughts and my life and all the things I've been dealing with and my email and issues that I'm I'm grappling with, I, I just think Satan is always active to try and get us as Christians in a situation that is going to take us off the path that's going to get us fearful, that's going to make us reactionary, that's going to get us into things that really, we as Christians, we, we, all it will be is pulling us away from the things that are important to God. Man, I just need us to see the necessity of praying that keeps our minds focused. Marizumai. Anxiety. I don't want to be anxious. I take my thoughts and my anxieties, and I'm going to cast them on the Lord, under God's mighty hand, and I know the, the, the Christian life, God is is a mighty powerful God who's going to respond to those things. Which by the way, if I don't have number 2 on this outline in place, I'm going to have trouble with number 4 on this outline, which is my prayer life. I just want to say that in thinking through and just kind of saturating my my heart in 1st Peter, I couldn't help but think when I think about prayer in 1st Peter to think of 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 7. So scroll up there real quick and take a look at this 1st Peter chapter 3 Verse 7. Likewise, husbands... Now, of course, this is in a context of how marriages ought to work. But he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is just one example of an area where we're called to do something. And he's saying, you better make sure you do it. Showing honor to the woman... As the weaker vessel, right? And in so many ways, we could talk about that like a like a, like a vase. There's something that you should do in setting it up on a pedestal. And in this case, your wife ought to be something that you set up on a pedestal. You ought to care for her. You ought to be sensitive and accommodating and understanding to her. Since they are heirs with you to the grace of life. I mean, God has her as a partner with you if you're married, of, of eternal life if you're a Christian. And now here's the threat. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Think about prayer in First Peter and the call to prayer. The fact that we ought to be committed to prayer. I think to myself, okay, I've got to make sure that number two on this outline is not skipped over as a non-important issue because my prayer life isn't going to be anything. It isn't going to be anything that it ought to be unless I'm committed to making sure that the things in my life that I'm not doing, that I know are sinful, are confessed and repented of and I'm moving forward. The last thing you want in your prayer life is to carry into your prayer life unconfessed sin. I hope like my prayer list, at the top of your prayer list, the first thing every day is confessing your sins. I mean, that's how God taught us to start praying, right? We we, we first say, forgive us our debts, right? We recognize the greatness of the God we're talking to. And then we think about the, the sin in our life. We say, God, I need to confess it. And I, I just, I want to keep that in view because as it says later in this passage, you're in chapter three, drop down to verse 12. It says very clearly, the eyes of the Lord, verse 12, it says, are on the righteous. This is a quotation of Psalm 34, by the way. And his ears are open to their prayer. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now, we're not talking about the perfectly righteous because there's only one perfectly righteous one and God would only have his eyes on himself, right? If we're talking about perfect righteousness, if we're talking about categorical righteousness, we're not talking about that. We're talking about relative righteousness. We're talking about the things that as a Christian that you could be doing, should be doing, and other people are doing, and you ought to be doing them, or things that other Christians are avoiding and you should be but he says here, the eyes of the Lord, his focus, of course, that's an anthropomorphic way to talk about God's favor and his, his relationship, the tightness of his relationship with you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears, listen to this, are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And the idea of our Christian life being motivated by that Psalm 34 passage is a reminder to me and to you that our prayer life is critical. It's the first agenda, but the first agenda in our prayer life, it isn't going to be what it needs to be if we haven't taken the first part of this sermon seriously, and that is to live a godly life, to be committed to a godly Christian life, and that if there's problems there, we claim the truth of Scripture that God is a forgiving God, He's merciful, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, and if His hand is heavy upon you and your prayer life stinks right now, it may stink because... You're not going to be a strong part of the church. You're not going to help strengthen the church unless there's issues in your life that you deal with. If there's sin, let's deal with it. If there's confession needs to have, confess it. If there's repentance, then repent. You know your heart. You know where you're at. And if you're confused about that, ask God because God has said, I'm happy to respond, right? To the prayer that says, search me, try me, know my heart, see if there's any wicked way in me. You pray that prayer. God will surely answer it. So prayer, number two, which is number five, which is verse eight. There's a lot of numbers, but go to verse eight. We're continuing in our passage, 1 Peter 4, 8, but above all, not but, but above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, God knows that we're sinners. We're trying to, in our Christian lives, move forward in our sanctification. We're taking our calling seriously to live righteously, but we're going to have problems. We're going to bump against each other. We're going to grate each other and 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 we're going to we're going to really give each other troubles just because we're all fallen and human, but we're moving as the Christian church toward trying to be more and more like Christ. But what we're going to need to cover and kind of grease the cogs, if you will, of the working together as a church is going to be love. So I put it this way, decide to truly love. And i got to clarify. Love in the scripture is not doing what everyone else wants. And it's not saying what people want to hear. Love is a real commitment to other people's well-being. And doing that is to understand with a sympathy that they are imperfect. And while I want to call them and encourage them. I want to call them to repentance. I want to encourage them to live righteously. I need to love them above all. Right? I can't function as a strong church unless I'm committed to loving each other. Critical sign of our regeneration. Back to chapter one. First Peter chapter one, verse twenty-one and twenty verses twenty-one and twenty-two. Just want to give you the context in verse twenty-one that we're talking about people, and he's thinking of their Christianity, those through him, it says, who are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, I gotta read that verse so that you know where the foundation of this verse is, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Okay. This is interesting. Here's the purpose clause. For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I mean, there's so much packed into that first chapter. But right there, to, to think about my obedience to Christ, having a purified my soul, having my sins forgiven, for a sincere brotherly love. A lot of times love in the scripture is directed toward God, that you're called to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. How interesting at the top of Peter's list here are... Christians being called to love each other, right? Doesn't exclude the fact that we love God first, but in this passage, the reminder that one of the primary things is he says in our text, above all, 1 Peter 4, 8, we love each other. And I'm calling you as part of the body of Christ. If we're going to have a church that is the church, and again, here's the context of all this sermon. Why did I choose to preach on First Peter chapter four? Because we need more than ever before the church to be the church. We're about to come out of this, this, this hiatus, this lockdown. We're going to get back to normal church, and I want us to be stronger. I've said this so many times to you on video. We'd we'll like us to come back stronger. As a church than we were when we got in, well, it's going to really necessitate the fact that we love each other. It's one of the signs of regeneration. First John is all about that. To know that you know God is to know that you see love in your life for your brother. Critical. Look at First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two. Just throw this in. how I, j- I just like the word here. Honor, honor, and love. It's just like this, uh, you know, this talk about a curve. Here's, here's this curve. I'm supposed to, verse 17, honor everyone. This is First Peter 2, 17. I'm supposed to love the brotherhood. And then I'm supposed to fear God and honor the emperor. Okay, I got God in the middle of all this, obviously. But on this side, I got the Roman emperor who was Nero at the time. It was a terrible... Emperor, very unjust. We should be campaigning and protesting against him, but instead we're called to honor him. And people in this world are a mess. They're the cause of persecution in the first century. They're causing all kinds of problems in the Christian's life. And so honor, honor. Now, in the middle of all this, I got love the brotherhood. I've got fear God. Those things are so good. Just that picture of. I've got a responsibility to my non-Christian neighbor. i got a responsibility to the people in society. i got a responsibility to the government officials. And all of that is honor. And that's a good word. I'm supposed to honor them. It's more than what most people do. But then when it comes to the church, so much higher. The calling is so much higher. And that is to love each other because I fear God. That's a great text. Much could be said on that. Decide to truly love. Make that your commitment. I'm going to love each other. I'm going to be kind and compassionate and considerate and forgiving them. The love... We've talked a lot about that during this video hiatus, but um, let me just leave it at that for now. Verse 9, back to our text. 1 Peter chapter 4. I told you we'd be all over 1 Peter, so we're continuing on here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 9. He says, show hospitality. Show hospitality. We've done all kinds of word studies on this in the past. I feel like I preach on this all the time. It's a compound word. Xenos, you might think of, because we have words uh, like xenophobia, phobos in Greek is fear. Xenophobia is fear of outsiders. Um, this is the opposite of xenophobia. This is uh, phileo, or love, xenos, that combo. And that is that I, I love outsiders. And the picture of hospitality is that I'm bringing others in. And, and of course, you could think of this contextually in the larger, broader context. That I'm, I'm loving the. I don't have the prejudicial animus toward other people that people have. I I, I love people. I honor people. I'm accepting of people, right, regardless of their their outsider status, right. I, I get that. But I think the context here, above all, love each other. The the picture of me loving the people in the church is me now saying, I'm going to let outsiders, I've said this so much, even through this break, this break, this 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 downtime, that I'm going to treat the outsiders as though they're insiders. I'm going to treat the people that are not my family as though they are my family. I'm going to love as my own brother or sister people that are not my physical brothers or sisters. There's a connection that people have because they share DNA. And I mean that not just physiologically or biologically, but I mean they treat them special right they treat their family special That's just the common grace of god well i ought to treat as special people that i have no dna shared with like of course i do but not familial dna because they're christians and in this passage i'm supposed to come and bring them together into my life i'm supposed to open up my life and draw together with them and really sacrifice and see them as family and treat them as family without complaining let's just put the point that way number six draw together without complaining so As we're on the cusp of drawing together physically face-to-face, we've talked so much about this in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul wants to get face-to-face with people. Satan's trying to keep them apart. I'm going to say now we get back together and be stronger as a church on the other side of this whole thing after months of being apart. I'm going to say it starts with prayer. It starts with commitment to love. And then here it is. I need now to be the kind of people that draw together, pull together, meet together. I wanna get those people in my life. I want them in my house. I wanna be in their house. I wanna be connected as a network of relationships. I wanna relax with them and and have leisure time and recreation with them. I wanna have prayer time with them. I want them in my life without complaining. See, the problem with people is they're going to, at some point, do something that offends you or frustrates you, and there's a lot of complaining. As Paul said to the Galatians, you can just bite and devour each other. So in this text, I just want to remind you not to complain, not to be grumbling, not to be, you know, or as most people do, just give up on being close with people because they're frustrating to you. Draw together without complaining. I just want to remind you that one of the reasons we don't do well with each other when we get them close in our lives is because we are prideful people. We don't have the humility. The best kind of friends that you're ever going to have are the kinds of people in the body of Christ who can learn to be humble. They don't see themselves as, as deserving or or being owed stuff. They, they really are willing to give and put other people above themselves. First Peter chapter five, verse five. Just want to quote this, just getting around in First Peter. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. That's the context of verse four verses about the elders, the, the leaders in the church. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Now he's gonna go. To the whole church, with humility toward one another. That's what we need. Not only do you need to be subject and humble under the leadership of the church, right? But you need to be humble toward each other. For God, now this is huge, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. An off repeated, an off repeated command uh, or statement throughout the Scripture, quoted in James chapter four as well. God is a, a God who is opposed to the proud. But gives grace to the humble. I want to make sure that in my life, I don't see the kind of isolation. The proud man isolates himself, the Proverbs say. I don't want to see the complaining, right? Thinking that everybody should be on the same, you know, likes and dislikes of my personal life. Uh, The kind of of exclusion of people that don't see everything the way that I do. I'm not talking about biblical truth. I'm talking about the way the proclivities of people kind of separate people into, into the factions and groups. I want to do all this for God's sake. Matter of fact, drop down to the next verse, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. My humility in verse number 5, now I know I jumped into that earlier to make the point about prayer that is made in verse 7. But in this passage, the segue between verse 5 and verse 7 is the fact that I'm humbling myself under God. I've just been called to humble myself toward other people. And I just want to show you that that's the reason I humble myself, not because I think they're better than me, although I'm to treat them as better than me, putting their interests before my own, not because I think they're more worthy than I am, but because I think God is more worthy than me, and these are God's kids. I submit myself to the one who has ultimate authority, the one that I love the most, the one I I see as the most authoritative, and he's got these kids and these are his kids. Just like if you're babysitting, doesn't matter how much smarter you are or how much better or stronger or faster or whatever it is that you think you are above the kids of God. This is the God that you're serving and you treat their kids with that kind of respect. Humble yourself for God's sake. Matter of fact, every act of humble submission is for the Lord's sake. Go back to chapter two, real quick. First Peter chapter two, verses thirteen through fifteen. Be subject, it says, First Peter two, thirteen. Be subject, here's the phrase, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be the Emperor as Supreme, or verse 14, or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good in this context, being subject to authority, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. To say the emperor As the supreme authority, when Peter is writing this, Nero, as I've often said, a homosexual, anti-God, cruel person who's killing people just because he doesn't like them. He says, be subject to them. And he's got to add this, for the Lord's sake. And I'm just saying, when it comes to you, having this kind of drawing together without complaining, I'm doing all that because I think it's worth God being pleased with me doing this because these are his children. In this case, I'm supposed to even be subject to authorities because Romans 13 says, they're ministers of God. I respect them for God's sake. And in this case, I love the people of God and draw them into my life and don't throw up my hands and so it's not worth the hassle or I don't like them or they rub me the wrong way or they've offended me. I draw together without complaining. I've, I've addressed this in sermons already in this shutdown, but I don't want you saying it's easier for me to just spend time with my family doing puzzles. I got more time to walk in the park. and go. To, I want to make sure that when we get back together, you're all about integrating your life into other people's lives because we're doing it for the Lord's sake. We do it without complaining. We we love them for the sake of the God who has purchased them by His own Son's blood. Number seven. Go back to our passage. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're looking at verses 10 and 11. It says that each has received a gift Use it to serve one another. We can preach a whole series of sermons on this one topic. But you've received some kind of endowment, some kind of favor from God that expresses itself in some tangible way. Well, now i got to use it to serve each other as good stewards. That means you've got a responsibility here as of God's very grace. God's favor is given to you in a different way than it's given to me in a different way than it's given to Him. And you need to say, I need to be a good steward of that and be utilizing all of that favor that God has entrusted to me in a way that is at the end of my life saying, I, did, I didn't bury this in the, in the dirt. I did what I should have done. I multiplied your investment in me in a way that was good for the body of Christ. If it happens to be speaking, verse 11, whoever speaks, we got to speak like you're speaking the oracles of God. Even if you're reiterating John three sixteen, which everyone's heard a thousand times, you speak as though God is speaking through you something that's peeling back the curtains and giving you a new insight into God they've never had. Whoever serves, maybe you're not a speaker, maybe God hadn't called you to that, who serves as one with the strength, by the strength that God supplies, that you're serving like like an Energizer bunny and you can't stop because God has just given you this power. What can I do? I want to go the extra mile, stay the extra hour, spend the extra dollar. I want to do whatever it takes to serve well. In order that in everything God may be glorified, and I hope He's glorified in our church because our church is strong, because people are doing their job, they're good stewards of God's very grace. May be glorified through Jesus Christ to him on glory and dominion. More on that phrase in a minute. That right there is a simple call for you. I put it this way, verse 7, to throw yourself into your ministry post. Number 7, throw yourself into your ministry post. Some of you are listening right now. You're listening to me. You do not have a ministry post. If I were to ask you, come to your house right now. Knock on your door. Open the door. It's Pastor Mike from Compass. Hey, what is your ministry post? you should have an answer to that. Here's my ministry post. This is what God has called me to do. And I'm not talking about, you know, hang out at Starbucks and talk to people. I'm talking about you having a ministry post for the common good of the church where you are serving people in the body of Christ. We could look at Romans, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter uh. 13, to do it out of love, Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 12, I'm sorry, with the idea of me being invested, that God has given me a measure of faith and I'm to be useful in the body of Christ. These are the kinds of things that first of all, come by you identifying what it is, right? And to know that there's no better thing for you to do than to be a good steward of that. Stewards stand back at the end of the day and say, I did the right thing. I did well. I feel good about this. It's that Greek word teleos. It's the right thing. It's the perfect thing. And if God has given you a gift to teach, then that'll be affirmed by the body of Christ. That'll be affirmed in the way that people respond. And you ought to do it. You ought to give yourself to that task. If it's serving, if it's prayers, if it's cards of encouragement, if it's the soundboard, if it's tech, if it's multimedia, if it's music, if it's singing, whatever your role is, you ought to do it and you ought to do it with all your might. You ought to throw yourself into that ministry post. Go back to chapter one, 1 Peter chapter one, verses 12 and 13. Let's just look at verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them, speaking of these prophets of the Old Testament, they were not serving themselves but you, which, by the way, is what Jesus said is always better. I'm not serving myself. The prophets weren't serving themselves, weren't even serving their generation in the things that are now announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. They were serving people that were not there in their immediate generation, nor were they serving themselves. God was giving them information. It's just one example of someone having a gift, in this case, the Old Testament prophets, to serve people they wouldn't even meet. I just wonder, really, if you give yourself to do something in a period of time that it's hard, that's a struggle, that's difficult, but you give your all to it, not even knowing, Right, what the benefit might be, but you're giving yourself to it and knowing that it's serving someone else. You're not doing it for your own good. How many people looking for some kind of ministry post in the body, of, post in the body of Christ, because they want it to fulfill themselves? Please recognize that God has called you to give and to serve. You need to have a ministry post and do it for the good of the flock. One more passage in First Peter. First Peter chapter five, verse one. I've looked around a lot in this chapter, but look at verse one. So I exhort the elders among you. Verses 1 through 4. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter, of course, had seen all that. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Yeah, he's a Christian. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you. You're willing, you're eager, you're throwing yourself into it. Not for a shameful gain. This isn't about you, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge. You're loving the power, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Again, we're keeping our judgment in view. And one thing here, we're keeping our reward in view. And we're recognizing how good it is to give. Throwing ourselves into our ministry post. And we want to give, we want to serve, and we want to do it for the good of the flock. I think the picture of the shepherd and the sheep is so good. The shepherd is not here trying to get ministered to by the sheep. He's here to give his life for those sheep. He's here to serve those sheep. He's here to corral those sheep and direct those sheep and love those sheep and protect and deliver and and take those sheep from wherever they're at to get them where they need to go. So let's make sure you have a ministry post. Practically speaking, get on the website. If if you don't have a ministry post or maybe you need to rethink what your ministry post is, click around on the website. There's an assignment for you. And just look what is going on at Compass Bible Church. I'm about to get back into church. I've been sitting in the back row. I haven't been... It's fine if you sit in the back row, but... I don't, I'm sitting in the back row, so to speak, of church. I'm not in the front lines doing anything for the glory of God, for the good of the church. I'm not a good steward of what God has entrusted to me. Find what that is. Cooperate with leaders in the church to help you find what that is. But click around and send some emails and get involved in doing in the church what you need to do. Have a ministry post. And once you have one, throw yourself into it. Be better at it. Be good at it. Give your life to it. Give your all to it. Eagerly and willingly get involved in it. I saved the end of verse 11 for us just to close on because it's such a good and positive thing going along here, but here we go. To him, last sentence in verse 11, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory and dominion. The leadership, the rulership, the reign, which is going to be glorious and opulent and extreme and majestic everything's going to come to Christ. Every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess, all the riches and honor and glory and dominion and power, all will belong in subjection to that king and the glorious kingdom is going to arrive and Christ is going to reign and he's going to do it. I love this last phrase, forever and ever. Put it down this way. Number eight, remember Christ will reign forever. Remember that. A lot of motives in the front. Some of it is a stick, right? Some of it is motivation of you standing before God in judgment and here's a motivation for you. Christ is coming back. And he's going to reign. And the kingdom is going to be delivered to the Son. And the Son is going to deliver it up to the Father. And we are going to be in the kingdom. That is a motivation that should drive us on and forward. Everything in this life, in this world, its desires, its passions, its agenda, all of it's passing away. But what matters is the reign of Christ. You need to throw yourself into your ministry post, remembering that Christ is going to reign forever. What a great vindication that will be. I've already quoted part of this passage, but look at it. We'll overlap into some parts we haven't read today. Look at verse 8 in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. We'll look at verses 8 through 11 real quick. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You've got to resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, who are committed to the agenda of God. They're going to serve God, do God's will. They're going to live righteously. They're working at this the way that we are here. They're experiencing all the same suffering in your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory will himself restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. And then again, beyond the horizon of this life, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Here it is again. Amen. That's a great recurring theme here. Twice in this passage, or in this little epistle, chapter 4, chapter 5, keep it in mind. All the vindication, all the deliverance, all the we're on the losing end of so many things in this world. As Paul said, we're like the scum of the earth. You stick to the agenda of God, you live righteously, it's going to be rough. We're praying that some will come to glorify God on the day He visits us, but it's going to be really hard. People are not going to applaud us, but one day we will be delivered, one day we will be vindicated. One of my favorite theological words, we'll be vindicated. We will be vindicated. Every knee is going to bow and we will have already been bowing all this time. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and his dominion is going to be forever and ever. This Jesus is going to reign. This will be our inheritance. He will be both both Lord and Christ. He's going to be the deliverer, the Messiah, and he's going to be the king. He's going to be the one with all the power. Go back to chapter 1. I'll end with this. Verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be. Here's a praise, a word of, of good to God. It's a word of worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, His name is Jesus, deliverer. He is the Messiah, Christ. He is the Lord, the boss, the King. According to His great mercy, which He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, it's future, it's looking beyond this life. Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, there's the validation of it all. To an inheritance that is, here's our future, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the core of all that is you being in a kingdom where Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Redeemer. He's going to reign in our inheritance. Our inheritance is being in that kingdom. He's going to reign there forever and ever. We got work to do. Really, it was so much about getting to the place of saying, if our church is going to be stronger, you're going to have to be stronger. I'm going to have to be stronger. To be a better church, the church that this culture needs, where we're going to call a few people out, small gate, I get it, narrow road, to call them out, we're going to have to get serious about being the church. The church is not going to be what it needs to be until we are strongly committed to the will and the agenda of God, until we are sincerely resolved to live righteously, until we see every day the future coming evaluation of the judgment of God, both for the lost and for Christians, recommitting ourselves to pray, to love, to drawing together with no complaining, to throw ourselves into our ministry. You need to have one. We need to do it with all of our might, knowing that we're going to win because we're with Christ and Christ is going to win and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. God, help us please to be committed to this in a way we never have before. Let these eight points be driven deeply into our hearts and minds. If we seek to be a better church than we were three or four months ago, in Jesus' name, amen.